You're listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. Learn about local issues, meet candidates, and find out what we're doing to bring more options to Georgia voters. Now here's your host, Brent Hilburn. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to the next uh, episode of the Georgia Liberty Cast. This is uh, our next in line of our Meet the Libertarian Candidates uh, for, for office this year. Um, this is our Secretary of State uh, podcast. Uh, our Secretary of State candidate is Smythe Duval, Duval, excuse me, Smythe, Smythe Duval. And as always, our producer for this uh, episode is Matt Franklin of Most Uniquest. Smythe, how are you? Doing well. Doing right. well. Thanks for having me. In my pleasure. Um, first, tell us a little bit. Um, well, I'll tell you what, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the Secretary of State's office. You know, I have this uh, as part of the podcast, I always research a little bit to give people an idea of, you know, what what the actual, uh, uh, what the topic is. And I'll just say this about the Secretary of State's office. It's a constitutional statewide office in Georgia. Originally, it was an appointed office. Georgia's constitution has been rewritten a couple of times, and now it's an elected office. So what, what I'd like for you to do is touch on the different uh, the different aspects that the office uh, covers. And, and let me give you a, a, a couple of lists here. Some of the things were very interesting that I didn't know about. Um, the Secretary of State's office is responsible for the archives and the history, uh, all the business corporations. Of mm-hmm. course, we all know about elections, mm-hmm. uh, professional licensing boards, uh, securities and business regulation, and they're responsible for the Capitol Tour and the Information Desk. And the Capitol Museum. So the Secretary of State's office has has quite a few things that they do. So tell us a little bit about Smythe. All right. Uh, well, I um, decided to run for Secretary of State this year. I'm running as an election reform platform. I'm a citizen candidate. I have, I'm not a professional politician by any stretch of the imagination. I wanted to make a difference in uh, election reform. I've been doing election reform probably for about two decades now, um, really specializing in ballot access. That was the, that was my forte. But uh, here in this past year, uh, I'm doing working on other p- political campaigns, uh, libertarian political campaigns. I helped uh, Christine Austin with State House 50. That kind of got me back into active politics. And uh, she and I worked on uh, a Gary Johnson website together. And from that experience, uh, we decided that the Secretary of State um, would be an excellent race to bring uh, election reform issues to the forefront, types of issues that not only benefit libertarians, but benefit all minor parties, well, benefit all Georgians, all independents, anybody that would be interested in fair and, and elective elections or fair and uh, competitive elections. Um, I am, uh, you know, in my 50s now. I've been a registered nurse. Um, I did that for nine years. Um, my uh, Part of the reasons for doing that was I wanted to be able to uh, spend time raising my children, and I wanted a career in which I did not have to um, be gone. I could actually set my own schedule. They're older now. I've uh, since left um, clinical nursing and went into uh, IT. And uh, my last uh, job was uh, information technology director, so I'm kind of what I call a recovering IT director now. And, um, <laughs> you know, I uh, did that um, in grad school over at Kennesaw State University and getting a graduate degree in information technology and certainly have paid a lot of attention to cyber and cybersecurity, which is something that's uh, becoming more and more important in, uh, in elections and election systems these days. And uh, it's a it's a, um, a passion. This is something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and this was the year to do it. All the stars lined up, and here I am. I am the Libertarian Party nominee for Georgia Secretary of State, and uh, we're taking this campaign to the people of the state of Georgia. Excellent, excellent. Now, I, I ask everybody the same question first because I think it's important, and that's the why Libertarian. And And when I say why Libertarian, I mean it from the – the standpoint of look, let's be honest. The state's set up for Republicans and Democrats. It's so much easier to say I'm a Republican and pay your money and run under the Republican banner, and, and the same for Democrats. So why Libertarian? Because you know this is the hardest road. But why Libertarian? You know, I 
uh, could not stomach a uh, Republican or Democrat. I haven't uh, been a part of the major parties since Ross Perot ran in 1996. I, when, I, when they excluded him from the debates in 96, I knew it was rigged then. Um, but I was independent for many, many years. Um, I'm a fiscal conservative, um, you know, so, social live and let live, and definitely anti-war. And when I met, uh, you know, started running with that uh, campaign in State House 50, I learned of the Libertarians. That was in 2014, and it's like, wow, um, you know, this this is a uh, a platform. This is a um, something that I could get into because you don't meet too many people. It used to be called moderates a long time ago. You know, somebody was fiscally conservative, socially liberal. You know, that was that was what kind of a moderate. But they don't have that anymore. And libertarianism makes more sense. Um, I approached libertarians about, hey, I have been in uh, election reform politics for a long time. I would like to uh, bring this and uh, the libertarians here of Georgia. We we talked about it, and you know, so I'm here, and I'm I'm looking forward to representing the libertarians in this race. Excellent, excellent. So let's let's start going through the specific functions of the Secretary of State's office where you see uh, that a libertarian hand will help. Obviously, we know about elections. We're going to leave elections to last because that's the most encompassing of what of what your campaign will cover. But let's talk about the, the corporations division of the Secretary of State. Okay, so you have corporations division. You also have um, the um, you know, business license uh, anybody that wants to set up corporation in, um, in the state of Georgia, or for that matter, uh, procure a business license, you're going to interact with the Secretary of State's office. And one of the things that you begin to learn about the Secretary of State office is that it's not necessarily a political position. In fact, it was kind of a sleepy position for the longest time up until the 2000 presidential election. And if you remember the hanging chads and Catherine Harris, that's when... Um, the things started to change, and the Secretary of State became more of a political position. Uh, until then, it's a very administrative, and corporate and business licensure is one of the many services that they provide to the public. There are um, ways that you know, we could improve the service that the Georgia Secretary of State um, uh, office pr- provides, and that really has to do with funding um, and uh, just the num- number of hands on deck that they have. That office was uh, severely cut back uh, after the Great Recession in 2009, 2010. Um, they have never really been able to add the, the personnel that they need at the same time that corporate and business licenses um, are, there are expanding, businesses expanding in the state of Georgia. One of the things as a, a Secretary of State I would want to do is approach the legislature and say, hey, look, you know, this you guys are always talking about making Georgia the place to do business. Business and yet, friendly, we hear that all the time, right? And, and yet, you're on this this the primary, the very first uh, office that people have to come and uh, contact with. Um, they're having a hard harder time than they used to have turning that business license around. And I have. Um, talked to people on the campaign trail that said, you know, it used to be I could get a business license in so many days. Now I actually end up having to pay the expedite fee to get it. And what we're um, beginning to suspect is, is that the Secretary of State's office is so underfunded that they're depending on the expedite fee for operational expenses. I don't know exactly if that's the case, but we there is some sus, uh, suspect that they are depending on that expedite fee. That needs to st- change. Uh, we need to. Right, provide. That's, a direct, that's a direct cost to to uh, to businesses in Georgia. Well, yeah, and then if you uh, if it's uh, it's also just kind of a underhanded. If you think about it, you okay? Yeah, if you want to get your business license in a timely manner, you're going to pay the expedite fee. It's not. It's not. Um, it should be. Uh, it shouldn't be that way. Right. And it's certainly, if everybody's doing it, then nobody's getting expedited. So. Right, you so know, they're providing the service that they should provide at the at the regular yeah. uh, the regular rate. Yeah. So you brought up professional licensing. Mm-hmm. Now, for libertarians, this is probably one of the things that we squeal about the loudest. Yeah. About how state governments specifically use professional licensing not only to limit choice in the marketplace, but also just flat out to generate revenue for the state. So 
you know, libertarians are all over the board on this in terms of the way they want to they want to deal with state licensing. Some are let's 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 eliminate licensing requirements altogether. You know, the first thing you hear then is Bob the plumber is now going to be your doctor next week. Um, from you know from people who out outside that uh, outside of government, but I think most libertarians, at least the ones that I know, want to see professional licensing reduced and mm-hmm. and and actually reformed. So talk about professional licensing. As this is uh, definitely an issue that we need to address in the state of Georgia. So over the years, um, the professional, the amount of and quantity of professional license, and I think it's up to 42 now, um, but the amount and quantity of licenses have, has increased. Uh, the now, uh, hours that are required for specific things have increased, but there's not, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to why one particular license is getting uh, so many hours and so many requirements, whereas another license does not. For example... A cosmetology, um, you know, it takes thousands, uh, you know, a thousand hours, uh, very expensive training for a person to come into the state of Georgia and uh, get the cosmetology training so that they can actually uh, get the cosmetology license in the state of Georgia. And you contrast that with an EMT, uh, emergency medical technician that works in the back of an ambulance, and it only takes a very few hours, uh, sometimes less than 30 or right at 30. There does, there's not any, any uh, rhyme or reason for that. The other thing about the professional, professional licensure that seems to be taking place is that it's a result of uh, lobbyists um, in uh, education industry um, being able to influence the legislature to say, "Hey, we need to um, you know create these licensures so um, that we have you know more health and more safety for these professions," but it it just turns out that it's just creating revenue for these private education groups. As Secretary of State, we need to actually say, "No, enough is enough." Um, this this is not only hurting the economy, it's not only hurting military families and spouses that transfer here from other states. And that's a big, big deal. You know, if you have somebody transferring in from Fort Hood, Texas, and they've been doing cosmetology, you know, doing uh, hair and nails in Texas, and they've been doing it for years, but they arrive in Georgia, and they're no longer allowed to do it until they spend um, thousands and thousands of dollars of tuition so they can pass this. That's nuts. That is not the way to actually run a business-friendly state. We need to go through and say, okay, is it for the health and safety of the public? I'm a registered nurse. Okay, I have my first experience with the Secretary of State was taking my nursing licensure, otherwise known as the RN. Okay, and as a registered nurse, it was for the health and safety of the people that I would treat. All right. The reason cosmetology and other places and things do have licensure is usually for hygiene, but you don't need a thousand hours to learn uh, aseptic technique. You just need to have a, a know just enough, and that's what we need. We need to bring uh, some common sense back into this. Librarians, I don't think there's any any reason there's going to be nobody that's to put uh, you know a health and safety problem if a librarian does not get a license, and that's just nuts. We need to go we, through these and, and we can't account. have those dangerous librarians those, yeah, that around right. unlicensed. I mean, come on, yes, yeah. that that's that's crazy talk. It is, <laughs> and, but and, and but there are other states that have taken this on, um, and we need to follow suit and say, okay, let's get get um, put the uh, restraints back on this and make if it's health and safety matters, then yes, we go ahead and follow up with the licensing that's required. Minimum licensing. Okay, you don't need to go nuts with it. You don't need to make it hard. Right? It just uh, is the health and the safety of the of uh, protected. Obviously, when you're talking about things like a librarian, that's not the case. Interesting, you brought up the fact that someone coming from another state. Mm-hmm. So, let me give you a scenario. So, you have a lawyer mm-hmm. who practices law in Tennessee, and that lawyer comes to Georgia. And has to take the Georgia bar, obviously, to be licensed in Georgia, because there are Georgia's specific laws and that and that type thing. But you use the Fort Hood example of where a cosmetologist comes from uh, Texas to Georgia, and they still have to go through all that licensing process, even mm-hmm. though 
I'll 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 go out on a ledge here and say that hair and nails is probably very common in Fort Hood, mm-hmm. like it is here in Georgia. So, having said that, is this more? I mean, is the state just using it as as revenue generation? It it appears that way um, when you when you don't have any rhyme or reason as to why you have uh, so many requirements for one profession and you have so few requirements for another profession that there is a lobbyist uh, in the middle of that somewhere and there's money follow the money and as as they say there's money um, being generated either for the state or for uh, these private uh, these institutions that are providing the training so that you can actually pass the licensure but yes it's there is, I think the most onerous example is the the emergency medical technicians have so few requirements, and the cosmetologists have so many, and that's, that's just that's just wrong. Right. So, so someone who um, administers potentially life saving um, uh, care mm-hmm. is has a fraction of the requirements that someone who does your nails. Correct. That is them, yeah. and that and that, that, that it, the only way that I can come up with an explanation for that is there is a, a lobbyist. There's something going on wherever the money's going. So, there's something so from a reform standpoint, reforming professional licensing would look like what from a libertarian standpoint. So uh, there is a uh, I can't remember the acronym at the moment, but there there is a, um, a committee already set up that's supposed to review. Georgia licensing requirements, compare that to with what the licensing requirements are uh, being done in other states, and keep it up to date. Obviously, this uh, this board or this commission is not uh, doing what they're charged to do. Uh, so one of the very first things is to take a look and investigate, okay, why is this board are, are not doing it? Are they, is it because they're not funded? Is it because they don't have the authority? Is it because um, nobody's ever called a meeting? I mean, who knows? But it is really uh, taking the time uh, to uh, get underneath that. But it's also getting in front of the legislature and saying, okay, we have some challenges. We need to clean this up. And I would, as Secretary of State, be advocating uh, and lobbying the legislature to uh, come back and take a look at our licensing laws, how they're created, how they're reviewed, and let's get some common sense in there so that we can put Georgians to work, that we are inviting People who are coming here on military transfer, they can co- go to work. That people who are wanting to start a business, that they can go to work. That we are not standing in the way of them being able to provide for themselves or for their families. Excellent. So the obviously the biggest and probably the one the one entity that uh, people realize the Secretary of State covers is elections. Yeah. So before we jump into the individual. Um, components of the election system. Tell us about the SAFE Commission. All right. So SAFE Commission um, was um, um, brought about just this past uh, spring by um, the current Secretary of State, Brian Kemp. Um, Brian Kemp uh, has, uh, the way that he explains it, the SAFE Commission is a response to voter activists who were not satisfied with the bills that had been put in front of the legislators just this year, and one of the main criticisms is that there was no sunlight, that it was being done behind closed doors, that, that we really did not know what was going on. I did lead, uh, help lead the charge to defeating Senate Bill 403, and certainly one of my main criticisms was it, it, what this, this uh, was being done in such a way that we could not tell if a preferred vendor was already even uh, had been identified, there was no real way of understanding that. What, what are the details of four hundred three? Just so- Senate Bill four hundred three was uh, came out, uh, and uh, essentially it was trying to solve the election um, voting machine problems, the voting machine uh, procurement this year. And the main objections that we had to it is, is that uh, the current Secretary of State would do the entire request for proposal and manage the entire uh, transaction and basically sign the contract before the November election and the next Secretary of State would have nothing to do but to implement it. Um, and it, it, it just smacked of a, of a hardwired deal. It just like, okay, it, uh, there was not a whole lot of interest in replacing those voting machines until all of a sudden there was. And now it was like they were trying to get it through as fast as possible. Um, and 
you know, without having a, uh, a whole lot of insight as to how the sausage was being made, you know, we were like, okay, there, there just seems to be an unusual amount of effort trying to get this done. We got, you know, I testified against it at the subcommittee meeting, uh, voter GA, common cause, uh, many, many election and voter activist groups uh, testified against it. Uh, we made enough noise that it made, uh, it, that the General Assembly did take notice. And uh, it's died on the very last day, sine die, um, within uh, hours, um, it died. Um, and whether they ran out of time or somebody just canned it, we don't know. Okay, but it needed to be canned. Fast forward uh, a few weeks later, um, uh, Mr. Kemp go ahead, went ahead and announced this um, commission, the SAFE commission. And this the SAFE is the, the Secure, Accessible, and Fair Elections. Correct. And okay. it's, uh, at first, he uh, announced a bipartisan commission, and um, we objected to that. I actually talked to Mr. Kemp on the phone about it. And this needs to be a multi-partisan commission, and he assured me that would have been a mistake in the AJC. It was always intended to be a multi-partisan position. And so uh, John Mons is a libertarian in uh, South Georgia, and he is now a libertarian that's on that commission. There also is an 18-member commission that has um, a lot of uh, representation by election officials, county election officials, does have voters at large, independent, um, and, of course, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, the meeting yesterday was at the Sewell Mill Library in East Cobb County, and it was very informative. Uh, there were three uh, presentations. We learned a lot about uh, Georgia elections. There's also a lot of criticism of this this commission because, and we're going to we're going to find out uh, if this commission is uh, truly an active um, commission that's going to do some research and actually churn out some recommendations that are based on on uh, research, or we're going to find out that there is just kind of a blue ribbon uh, kind of thing that's really not doing much anything. We don't know yet, but we're, we are very um, looking at the schedule that they have, how much work that they're trying to get done, and more importantly, how much are they depending on vendors themselves for the information they have. So um, in my opinion, uh, I'm, I ha did congratulate current Secretary of State Kemp for calling the commission because that's what we asked for. Um, but it's not, it's not finished. Uh, we, we want a, a real commission. We don't want a, a window dressing. Uh, that means they have work to do. And uh, as of right now, I'm, I'm still waiting to see their, you know, their agenda. And they so, should be extraordinarily, extraordinarily busy this so summer. What, so what, <clears throat> what were they charged with originally? What was the commission charged with? Actual just looking at the entire election system or looking specifically at replacing the voting machines? It's spe or? specific to voting machines. Okay. Okay. And uh, it is to make recommendations. It is to review the data that they have. It is to take a, a look at the issues. It was to uh, provide a vehicle for public input um, so that the public could you know, see what's happening and, and to be able to have a, an open process um, an open process for, you know, what are the criteria that we're going to use for deciding which next election machines, what are the type of the technologies, where does the technology stop um, and start in terms of the security. You're going to hear a lot of, uh, of controversy going on about the hand-marked ballots. Um, and it's an extraordinarily important conversation for Georgia uh, voters to be in because, you um, if you're anybody that's in computer systems, you know that you can make a variable stand for anything. But if you actually have someone write an English language, then you're not going to be able to change that inside a computer program. Let me explain that a little differently. There's it's the the problem we're having, and the the, the big the very big um, challenge is that. Are the voters going to be able to hand mark a ballot so that that ballot is person readable, uh, human readable, all right, and that anybody could pick up that ballot and see the intention of that voter uh, without any other piece of machinery, without a scanner, without anything? And if that's the case, then you have a, a, a legitimate ballot, okay? And that ballot, somebody can see the intention of that voter that on election night or uh, a year later or whatever. Right. But 
Alternatively, if you have a touchscreen system that prints that ballot out, but the actual results, the actual uh, things are embedded in a barcode, uh, and the barcode is what gets tabulated, people can't read barcodes. Right. And that barcode, any programmer can tell you, I can make that barcode stand for anything. Correct. Okay, and I can make it stand for one thing one minute, and I can stay, you know, stand for another thing the next minute. So there, it does introduce a security flaw uh, at the very beginning of the uh, of the voting sequence, and that's the. And of course, uh, the the opposition to this is like, okay, look, we have election nights, we have thousands and thousands of ballots. We got to process all these things, and we need to have an automated way of doing it. We don't want pre-printed forms because pre-printed forms cost a lot of money. I might order two hundred thousand ballots, and only ten thousand voters show up. You have all this other, you know, other things. So it's a, a huge discussion that we have to have um, because the election uh, integrity of the inle- of the elections is paramount. With what's going on in the country right now. Election integrity is by far one of the most important decisions that George is going to make over the next couple, three years. And we have to have a system in which a majority of Georgians are not suspicious of what's actually being done within that election system. And I am of the opinion that hand-marked ballots um, provides that ability because with between hand-marked ballots and whatever scanning system that you end up reading those marks... Um, that's fine, but you can always do uh, a, a audit, uh, sampling audits later to see that everything is uh, is kosher, right? All right, and that and and being able to provide that kind of ironclad guarantee. Yeah, your votes being counted the way you intended it to be counted. I just want Secretary of State Duval to give me a receipt whenever. I cast my ballot. So right now, because right now we all walk into the, we all walk into the electronic machine and pop our little yellow card in, and we vote, and we press a button, and the little yellow card pops out, and the screen goes blank, and I walk out and wonder, did I make a mistake? I mean, yes. even I mean, even it, I mean, I'm I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident in my ability to check all the right boxes, but. How about one more last check before I walk out? Yes. Uh, I, I, so that's a great point. And that, um, so you do, uh, you, you should be able to hold your ballot and be able to read your ballot. Okay. Now that's not a receipt. What ideally uh, you would, um, if you remember the bubbles, uh, those yes. bubble sheets that you used to in high Absolutely. school, you know, that would be a kind of a, an idea of like, you know, how it might look. And then you would take that over to an optical reader, and then the optical reader would actually uh, record the results. All right, and that would be the end of it. You can't actually walk out with a receipt because of vote right. buying and vote selling problems. Right. All right, but in but, terms of being able to, review, I, I would have no problem leaving yeah. my receipt there. Right. I just want to have the one last assurance <clears throat> for me personally. Okay, this yeah. is this is just <clears throat> me talking. I want to have the one last assurance because once I leave that voting booth. Yep. I'm at the mercy of the equipment, and I'm fairly confident the equipment is. But you know, I want to be really confident. I don't yes. want to be fairly confident. And the other thing is, it's an it's a paper trail that you can audit the machines with. Yes, which then eliminates that. Oh, the Russians hacked our machines because if I hear that one more time, I'm going to go crazy. But you know, we've heard that for the last two years. But something. Mm-hmm. Something and I, and I and I know I'm not a unique voter. Okay, I know that this is something that voters are clamoring for because it brings another level of integrity, but also brings a level of accountability where we can verify that the machines, like you said, you can do sampling. Yeah, you sample. You, you can do. You sampling. take a you can take a stack of ballots and and you you know uh, I call them receipts. You have another word for them. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just use that word because that seems the most logical thing. Yeah. When I'm finished, I get a printout. If you think about, and I don't want to bore the listeners with statistics, but if you think about uh, the deviations and, uh, and things like that, the closer you get to 50-50, the larger your sample is going to be. And then and when you're right at 50-50, you're at a recount, right. which is 100% right. you know, uh, audit. So yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, it's a good way. It's, it's a, good a way, it's a really good way mm-hmm. to make sure that there's 
integrity, and I don't think anyone can argue with it at that point. I don't think anyone can come back and say the machines just aren't everything we want them to be when you have a a, a double check. All right, we we don't get off in the weeds there. So elections, uh, you know, you I, I want to emphasize too that all the things you did with SB it was a four hundred eight, four hundred three, four hundred three, SB four hundred three. That was as a private citizen, correct? That's correct. Okay, I, that yeah. that's that's another important thing to remember for all the voters out there. You did this on your own time because you were passionate about it. Yes, and, that is correct. And, 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 and this has led into your campaign. Well, I, well, I was, uh, by the time that the legislative session started, I had uh, declared my candidacy, but my candidacy uh, came out of voting, uh, the voting machine problems. I went to a Common Cause uh, presentation in December. I was a, uh, coming from, uh, I was a former IT director, had to manage uh, IT uh, security vendors and make sure I was the HIPAA officer. And so had a lot to do with security and I was appalled. When I heard the state of our voting machines, that our voting machines were on Windows 2000 systems that had not been patched in years and years and years, that there were central points of failure, that there, uh, this, even the premises that they were unlo- uh, being, uh, they were stored in were uh, not even locked. I'm um, like, okay, whoever's doing the security here, they're not in a security frame of mind. Right. And um, that was uh, the tipping point. Okay, this is it. I, I can't. I can't sit on the sidelines any longer. I'm getting into this election. Um, and it was also the opportunity to talk about election reform um, and being able to talk about election reform, not just through the primary. You'd ask why I don't run as Democrat or Republican. I know I'd get primaried if I were trying to talk about election reform. You know, in, in Now you get to talk till November. I get to about talk about it to November. And I... I want the listeners to know that I'm going to be talking about it past November, that we are going to be working to establish coalitions in this state, to establish effective lobbying in this state, to bring election reform, um, things that would benefit not only Libertarian Party members, but benefit all Georgia. And I would like for the Libertarian Party to say, hey, yeah, we are advocating for things that benefit all Georgians. Well, I'd like for the, I'd like for the Democrats and the Republicans out there, the, uh, the independent mind, Democrats and Republicans to listen to what you just said as well. The fact that, you know, it doesn't really matter which party you root for. I think we all want to have elections and an election system that we are 100% confident that the results are the results. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that that goes way beyond party politics. And, you know, the libertarians are going to be the ones who lead this. Yes. All right, so elections, voting machines, ballot access, gerrymandering, ranked choice voting, all these things, they're all encompassing uh, inside election, uh, the election purview. So we're going to talk, we talked a little bit about voting machines. Let's talk about the current ballot access laws in Georgia and what the major parties have done to restrict, exclude uh, independence. The uh, ballot access uh, laws in Georgia are some of the worst in the entire nation. And a lot of Georgians uh, wonder, like, why do you guys, why do you libertarians always running for governor or why are you running for secretary of state, but you will not run for my, my local state house or you won't run for uh, local? And the answer to that is, is that we can't, not without a lot of trouble. Um, ballot access restrictions were introduced uh, in the late 40s as a, a response uh, to uh, the communist scare in, the, in the Georgia, and they were never repealed. I'll give you a very good example of how that plays out. We have Martin Cowan running over in the 13th district. Martin is very qualified to be a congressman. He's a former judge. He knows what he's doing. That's, he knows the, US, what he's, that's the U.S. district. U.S. US district. Yeah, district. U.S. Okay. House district. So he's going to represent 600,000 plus Yes. Let's see, because that's an important number, so go ahead. Yeah, it is. And the thing is, is that he can't campaign right now on getting his message out. He can't spend his money on flyers. He's, he can't do all that stuff because he is saddled with collecting 20,188 signatures. The Democrat and the Republican that are in that race don't have to do that. All they do is go down to the Secretary of State's office and, and put in a filing fee. That's it. That's all they have to do. And then they're off doing their campaign. The reason this is so insidious 
is that you can't grow a party if you can't run a local race. I would have much preferred starting at a local race. I would have run for a state house race. It would be a lot easier for me as a first-time candidate to run as a state in a state house race. I mean, you know, local races are training grounds. Local races are where you learn to be a candidate. It's where your staff learns how to run a campaign. And but the, the Democrats and Republicans know this, and that's why they restrict it. They say, okay, no, we'll, we'll let you run statewide races because it'll exhaust all your resources and you won't know how to do it anyway. Right. Right. But we'll let you do that. But you can't run. You're not. And it, it very effectively uh, inhibits. I mean, it's really, really hard to create a party, an active competitive party, if you can't compete locally. And that's why those ballot access restrictions are there. Is this is this an accurate figure? Eight out of 10 Georgia House races have no competition. That it, yes, uh, that the la- that was the last f- figure was uh, 2016. I don't know, you know, it, it's right. actually just, available just, now, yeah, but I only know what it is right now. now, and I know that's. But um, yeah, eight out of ten Georgia House. So there's races. 180 House seats. Mm-hmm. So what, 30, 40 maybe were actually had competition. That was it, and that was it, and that the fact that they had no competition, and and yet um, they're still requiring libertarians or independents or greens or anybody else that wants to run to have uh, an incredible amount of signatures just to run. Um, that is that is political oppression. That is a very definition of political oppression. And 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 I and I think you know it's easy for people to hear that, but then. I don't think they realize the actual, you know, okay, so great. Nobody else wanted to run in that district. You know, whatever, no big deal. It's not that no one else wanted to run. It's that the burden, if you don't want to be a Democrat or a Republican, is so great that you can't run. Right. But then what does that do to that local community? Talk about what it, talk about what restricting choice does to that local community. That The, the local community uh, does not have uh, any kind of uh, civic or, or, or things to participate in. It, the impact, think about this. If you have somebody that's unopposed on the ballot, Georgia State House, they're unopposed. There's no newspaper covering the story. There's no debates covering the story. There's no reason to get out and talk about the issues. There is not, there's not... Um, the social aspect. There's of, no barbecue. There's no barbecue. There's no parades. Right. There's no. There's yes. nothing. The community just says, "Well, we yeah, got, we yeah, got yeah. our guy. We got that's it. Then the primary is done. Everybody go home. You know, and the the impact that yeah, uh, generation after generation of having this problem in which the people are you know they're they're unopposed. We now have entire um, generations of young people who don't even know that we have local elections, much less have never seen one or participated in one. All right. A lot of people think of ballot access laws, too, as it's just a restriction on the candidate. And I always remind them that that's not just it's just not the candidate. It's anybody and everybody who is not satisfied with the choices that they have on the ballot. As Americans, you should have the right to coalesce and organize around somebody in your community that you think would represent your community and not experience oppression from the government that you cannot organize around that particular person. And that is an extraordinarily uh, oppression of all the members of that community that wish that they could actually have another representation, but they can't. uh, They cannot engage or participate in the political process. You can't get on the ballot. You can't participate in the political process in a meaningful way as a running candidate. Well, and I think another another important um, byproduct of that is you get extremes mm-hmm. because you don't have another voice in that community that would be a moderating factor. So if you look around, and, and this isn't just unique to Georgia, mm-hmm. but since we live here, but if you look around the country, you see some areas, and let, let's be honest, both parties do it all around the country. We mm-hmm. have libertarians specifically have ballot access problems nearly everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and you end up with extreme positions on either side because there's no moderating voice there to come and say, hey, did anybody ever think about this, doing it this way? Mm -hmm. So you lose that ability. So hand-in-hand with ballot access, of course, goes gerrymandering. And talk talk about gerrymandering has been worn, and I've I've been around Georgia politics a long time, it's it's worn like a badge of honor Mm -hmm. here in Georgia of how... 
<laughs> of how each side can do the other side by, you know, we'll, we'll, if, if, you know, we don't like this particular guy, we'll just redraw his district and, you know, district him out because we've seen that happen. We've actually had candidates have to move mm-hmm. to another area so they can be closer and, and requalify. And this is, this is both parties. Yep. Democrats did it for decades and Republicans are doing it now. So talk about how ballot access and gerrymandering go hand in hand. Sure. All right. So um, as you said, gerrymandering is um, uh, the party in power drawing the political lines to their advantage so that they maximize uh, their representation in the, in the legislature and minimize the other. Another way of saying gerrymandering is, uh, is the art of wasting your opponent's votes. Um, however you want to say it, what it is is that if you actually take a look at the – uh, let's just say for Pennsylvania, because I know it off the top of my head, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania is uh, almost right down the middle, 50% Democrat, 50% Republican. They have 16, um, had 16 members of the United States House. All right. If that Pennsylvania was represented um, correctly, okay, uh, appropriately, they'd have eight Democrats right. and eight Republicans for a total of 16. Right. But because of gerrymandering, they have 13 Republicans and three Democrats. All right. And that's what gerrymandering does. Even though the, the, the population of Pennsylvania is 50-50, right down the middle between the two parties, what ends up in Congress is 13 out of 16 uh, on the Republican side. And that's how effective 21st century gerrymandering is. And that's the Republicans doing it in that case, Democrats doing it in Maryland, you know, whoever's in the party in power is, it, it does it at the time. The way it fits in with um, um, ballot access is that you end up drawing um, these districts um, in which you're packing your opponents all into one district so that you waste as many ba- votes as possible. You only need 50% plus one to win an election. So anything after that, you're just wasting of, of your opponent. Uh, I think John Lewis, uh, I mean, his uh, district down there might be 70% Democrat. You know, uh, t- t- that 20% um, past 50 is t- completely wasted. That, those votes could have been distributed out to other counties um, to make that a competitive seat and make the other counties or other districts a competitive seat. The, um, it's, it's, uh, it's insidious. Um, the worst part about this is uh, the 21st century gerrymandering uh, is taking uh, the processing power, computing power, um, all the information that um, you're leaving behind on Facebook and, and Google and all these, um, and they're able to correlate that to which, um, uh, you know, which uh, in Georgia is the, you know, which primary you participated in. Right. And they have a great statistic that t- is turning out to be extraordinarily reliable, and that is, is if you pick out the same primary for two elections in a row, then you're going to probably vote for president and uh, um, that same ticket. Um, and we're very reliable. Yes. And if they don't have that, they can say, okay, well, if you're ordering Guns and Ammo magazine and this one's ordering Atlantic magazine, we can pretty much guess, you know, which, uh, you know, that's where the big data comes in. Right. It's, it's huge. Um, the Supreme Court heard three cases on gerrymandering this term. Not one, not two, but three. And that's how big it is. And um, that decision might come out before this podcast is released. It's just it, that it's um, NET now, um, and it's going to be a game changer no matter what. Um, you know, in terms of the ballot access, it's just another way of limiting. It's another way of limiting uh, your choices. And, and I, think, I think people may or may not realize that there's a level of collusion here between Democrats and Republicans. Yes. I mean, they, they really enjoy the fact that they control the electoral process, so they will... They will, in fact, give each other safe seats mm-hmm. in exchange for the other side not barking too loud right. and not filing lawsuits. So you really have, I, I think the last, and, and, and you may have better statistics than I do, but in, in the House of Representatives the uh, in Congress, uh, there are 435 seats. The last I heard, there were 50 Fifty-ish or so seats that are actually competitive. It's actually way less. I see, think. so yeah. you have yeah. So see, I mean, they've done it to the point where it's an illusion at mm-hmm. this point. It's political uh, theater. It, yeah, it's, it's an illusion, yeah. really. Really, mm-hmm. it, I, I think if you look right now in Georgia with the contested and uncontested races, you're going to pretty much see who your House and Senate are uh, right now. You can do it today. You can just look at the primaries and see. Even in this banner year, in which there's more new candidates than ever. Um, 
uh, you still have, uh, I th- I, I'm not I'm totally positive that's 60% um, unopposed. And that's down from you. Know, so. That's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, you mentioned Georgia is a is a fifty fifty plus one state. Okay, so explain what that means. So in Georgia, you have to uh, have a majority to win office. All right, uh, and this is um, that is is that you have to have fifty percent plus one to actually but win uh, as a uh, win uh, office in the state. This is a good thing. Um, there are other other states in which you just have to get the most votes. And that's a bad thing. And the reason in getting uh, uh, the most votes is a bad thing. I mean, it works okay when you only have two candidates, but Wait if you, you have, have ten, but when you have yeah, <laughs> when you have ten, then you're uh, basically somebody's going to win because the the opposition is fractured. Right. And uh, and the the challenge with that is is minority rule. I mean, basically, you, you know, somebody won with thirty seven percent of the vote, but you know, sixty three percent of the people voted Vote against, against them. them. Right. right. And that's and so Georgia has um, the runoff system, and I would not get rid of it forever, never. That and, and people are going to going to be tempted to that because I am going to be coming out and saying runoffs are expensive. We need to have. We spend millions of dollars in the state of Georgia on runoffs. Okay, and but we don't have to. This is where we would introduce ranked choice voting. And I want you to talk about ranked choice voting and tell us what that is, what it's all about, how it works, but more importantly, how it's a reform and how it'll save money. Well, it, it, the ranked choice voting has a great feature in which it has what's called, called an instant runoff, and that is is that your voter will go to the poll one time. Click, give all the information at one time and not have to come back nine weeks later. And they were, they were able to do it. So how does that work? Ranked choice voting is nothing more is, uh, than putting a one next to your favorite candidate and a two next to your second favorite candidate and so on and so forth. You just rank the candidates in the order of, of preference. And then when it comes to time to count this, um, they start looking at all the ones that were ranked uh, number one, and if anybody is at 50% plus one, the election's over. But if they don't have 50%, then the candidate that had the lowest amount of uh, votes, they're going to be eliminated and the second round starts. And those voters that chose that, that candidate, um, their second choice is going to get applied. So the vote is never wasted. And that's the important thing for voters is that the vote is never, ever wasted. You can choose the candidate that you truly, truly want without worrying if it's going to impact a candidate that you detest. There's no more lesser of two evils problem. There's no more strategic voting. There's no more listening to somebody try to guilt trip you, saying, "Okay, if you vote for this candidate, you're, you're going, going to if you you're vote going for the libertarian. You're going to elect the Democrat or the Republican." Right. That, that's gone. That is gone. And because of that, ballot access is no longer incented. There's no incentive to have ballot access restrictions if the spoiler effect is eliminated. And that is why ranked choice voting is going to be probably one of my signature issues this year. One is because Maine just passed it. Right, the people of Maine have fought like hell against a tyrannical governor, a tyrannical legislature, and uh, they've passed it twice. And this time, it's going to stick. All right, it's being passed in cities across the United States. It would benefit Georgia military overseas because they would be able to participate in not only our elections but in our runoffs. We wouldn't have this nine-week period between the time a general election takes place and the runoff takes place. It would save Georgia millions of dollars. All right, And the thing is, is because it is not biased against third parties, because it actually encourages third parties and independents, I anticipate that both the Democrats and the Republicans in this state are going to be against it. And they're not going to be against it because of any uh, anything other than it's going to be different. It's going to be too complicated. Too complicated, right. Right, right. it's way too complicated. You, so, so basically, libertarians understand that Georgia voters are smart enough to mm-hmm. be able to go to the ballot and rank who they want as their one, two, three, four, five, mm-hmm. six, however many are on there. But the Democrats and the Republicans are going to tell Georgia voters that it's just too complex and it really won't work. That's exactly what they're going to do. And the reason is it protects the two-party system. Right. They want they 
work together in a bipartisan fashion to protect the two-party system. You think they're always at each other's throats? No, they are very bipartisan when it comes to protecting that two-party system. That is why ballot access and uh, rules uh, have not been changed since 1943. They work it together. No matter who's in power, they always kind of throw something out there, but they just never get around to it. Right. It, they protect it. So that's that's going to be the huge. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a, a fun argument to say, hey, it serves the military. Are you against serving the military with using ranked choice voting? It's going to be fun talking to them. And we're going to save millions. I'm actually trying to get to how many millions. Uh, it's not a statewide number. You have to actually get it from all 159 counties, but it, and it's not a line item. So we're going to be working hard to see if we can find out how many millions. But we got a, a, a preview that Fulton County spent about seven million recently just. Um, on, on elections, and a good portion of that is going to be in runoffs. Wow! So, so, so you you actually, um, as a test, you mm-hmm. did this mm-hmm. for the Republican primary. Yes. Talk about that. So, I uh, for the Republican governor's primary, I uh, put all four of the candidates out there on a poll um, and uh, it advertised on Facebook. So you had you had the you know, Casey Cagle, Brian Kemp, um, Hunter Hill, Hunter Hill, uh, Clay Tippins, and Michael. What was uh, Michael Williams. Williams. Right. And, um, you know, invited the public to come in and rank their choices um, from their uh, favorite to their least favorite. And it was fascinating. First, uh, they got to experience ranked choice voting firsthand in a, in a current race. But uh, the most fascinating part about it is that the um, neither um, Casey Cagle or Brian Kemp really came out on top as a consensus candidate. They had, were, had a lead at one point, but D- Hunter Hill was the consensus candidate for all of the Republicans out there. So basically, Hunter Hill was the, mo- he was the most broadly liked candidate yes. among the Republicans, which, which then would tell you that he got a lot of ones, twos, and threes, most likely. Right. I mean, I, and, and, and look, that's who you want. You want the guy because that's the guy who the consensus is among the group. Well, think about how much stronger the Republican ticket would be, or for that matter, our politics would be. Because uh, let's see, Cagle got forty uh, percent of the vote, right? Sixty percent of the GOP voted against him for somebody else, correct? Right. All right. Um, Kemp got twenty-five percent of the vote. Therefore, 75% of the GOP voted against him. So now you have this runoff between two people who, uh, you know, two candidates who were both have a, a majority of the GOP voters in Georgia against them. It doesn't make any sense if you think about it, especially if you know of a, a better way to actually have consensus. If you had a consensus candidate heading into the November election, it's going to impact your ability to get voters out to the polls. It's going to impact your ability to raise money. It's going to impact your, you know, uh, your ability to do things. You have polarizing candidates, that's, and that's uh, a result of gerrymandering. It's a result of, of years and years of just neglect. But it's the polarizing candidates that are actually uh, making it past the primaries. It's not the consensus builders like a Hunter Hill. Excellent. So let's wrap this up with... Um you know, we started out why libertarian. Uh, let's wrap it up with what changes, what benefits would you see having a libertarian uh, as the secretary of state for Georgians? The um, the libertarian, the thing that I offer uh, more than anything else uh, is uh, first thing. I am a citizen candidate. I I, I do not answer to uh, any. Any uh, leadership, I do not answer to any lobbyists. My opponents are are um, probably men of integrity. They're probably, you know, they're very qualified, and yet they are burdened with maintaining the two party system. They are burdened with answering to other uh, other folks in this race. When it comes to elections, you want somebody who is uh, not biased, who does not have a predetermined dog in this fight. You want somebody who can officiate uh, that to referee to say, "Hey, this is these are the rules. We're going to have a fair election. We're going to have integrity in these elections." And no, I'm not going to be playing games with voter rolls. No, I'm not going to be playing games with closing precincts down. No, I'm not going to be playing games and trying to suppress the vote because it's going to impact one party or another. I'm not 
not going to be playing games with lawsuits, saying, okay, we're going to go light on this lawsuit because it would benefit our side, or we're going to, you know, really push this lawsuit because it, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, no, we're not doing that. We're going to do what's best for all Georgians. As a libertarian candidate, as a citizen candidate, the one thing that I offer to Georgia is uh, integrity in the system. Um, that is why I'm running. Excellent. And I, and I know you mentioned... Uh, I know you mentioned uh, voter rolls that that seems to have uh, uh, come to come to the forefront now with what mm-hmm. happened in Ohio. Um, Georgia has a I think it's a three year. That's correct. Yeah. Every three years you we purge the voter rolls. Mm-hmm. So. Second. So it's uh, this is a, a very fascinating issue. I was. A little surprised the Supreme Court went along with this case because two. Uh, so basically, uh, the c- case was about if somebody does not vote, um, you know, in two elections in a row, they can get purged. All right, and in the state, and that's a two-year, and in Georgia, it's three-year. If you don't, if you're not active in voting or participating in elections, you can get purged. And honestly, they got to do it. Okay, the Secretary of State is going to get sued no matter what. They're going to get sued if. They're not purging the rolls, okay, because you've got to have accurate rolls. But they're going to get sued if they're too aggressive with it at the same time. So you've got to find that particular balance in there. Um, the one thing that I am going to do and advocate for as Secretary of State is what's called same-day voter registration. Same-day voter registration just means that, uh, you know, if you go up and you're ready to vote at a polling and you find out that you're no longer on the, the, the polls anymore because you've been serving overseas or because you've been doing kind of things. You just go over to a table and you do all the things that you would need to do to register to vote. My opponents will tell you, well, that's not enough time to process it. Well, I, I'm, I cry foul on that. That's, that's, that's not a legit answer. We can approve credit. We can figure out, if the government can't figure out where you live with all the information we have now um, on the spot, it's just, an, it's just an excuse. And, and Georgia Sorry. already has a provisional ballot right. procedure in place anyway. Right. So, you know, you, you treat that, like you said, you do, you treat same-day voting like a provisional ballot. It won't take any time to It won't that. take any time at all. And, and it protects voters from partisan monkeying with the voter rolls. Right. And, and that's, and that's um, we, we got to make sure that the, that is protected. Talk to the voters. Tell the voters what you want. Wrap it up with... Whatever you want to say to the voters. All right. Well, uh, again, my name is Smythe Duval. Smythe Duval. I am running for the Georgia Secretary of State. I am a citizen candidate for the Georgia Secretary of State. I'm not a polished, uh, polished politician. I have not been public speaking all my life. Um, I am learning how to do this on the fly. I decided to get into this race because I could not sit on the sidelines any longer. I've been an activist for years, and this was my year to do something about it. Not only am I doing something this election year, but I'm going to be following up with creating coalitions among libertarians and uh, independents and any of, uh, anybody within the Democrat and Republican Party that wants to join us in election reform, then we're, we're welcome. I would encourage all libertarians out there that you insist that they join us. We're not going to be a swing vote in 2018. We're not going to be a swing vote in 2020. The price that we want for our vote, for our support, is election reform. We want ranked choice voting. We want gerrymandering uh, abolished. We want particular things. We want representation for all Georgians. I'm bringing that message to the state of Georgia. I've been inspired by the people of Maine. Maine and the people of Maine fought an incredibly, incredibly hard uh, to get where they are today. I was inspired by that, and I want to bring that to uh, baton to the state of Georgia. And in Georgia, we bring um, election reform to the forefront, that we establish a coalition, and that we actually uh, bring these things to pass. Tell people where they can find more information about your campaign, where they can send money. All right. Uh, my uh, Facebook page is uh, fb.com, uh, Duval for Georgia, D-U-V-A-L, uh, F-O-R-G-A. Or you can just uh, type my name on Facebook, Smythe Duval, S-M-Y-T-H-E, 
D-U-V-A-L, and you'll find it on Facebook. I do have a, a um, website that we're, we're finally going to revamp here soon, but it's uh, duval4georgia.net, D-U-V-A-L-4, F-O-R, Georgia.net. Um, and both of the, the, both the uh, Facebook page and the website does have a link um, for uh, donations. I would implore you to uh, go ahead and send in donations. Uh, if uh, Campaigns cost money. I need to get the message out. I'm looking for people to uh, donate. I'm looking for people that are willing to host a party uh, to help me fundraise, host a party at your home, or host a party at uh, one of your favorite local restaurants. Uh, let me have the opportunity to speak to your friends, to your neighbors. Um, but more than anything, uh, I don't have uh, a million dollars like opponents have to uh, get my name on yard signs all over the place. So I got to be more clever. I have to be uh, more connected. And if you're listening to this podcast, I implore you to uh, give us a call, help us get the message of election reform, uh, the message that there is an alternative to the Democrats and Republicans. Excellent. Smythe, thank you so much. Uh, if you want any information about any candidate, any libertarian candidate running this year, it's lpgeorgia, spell the word Georgia out, dot com, slash about, slash candidates. That will get you all of the Georgia candidates that are running for uh, Libertarian Party this year. Uh, I'd like to thank Smythe for, uh, for being here. Good luck. And as always, our producer extraordinaire, Matt Franklin of Most Uniquest. Until next time. You've been listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. The theme song for this episode was Metaltania by Kevin McLeod, released to the public domain through freepd.com. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and leave a review. You can email the show's producers at podcast at lpgeorgia.com. If you're a libertarian in the state of Georgia, don't forget to find your local affiliate at lpgeorgia.com.